right, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. First Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning as we continue through a series we're calling Living in Light of His Return, and uh, it's appropriate for Advent as we look at His arrival. We await His second arrival. So as you're turning there, let me go ahead and make you aware of some announcements. Number one, thank you so much for letting me go on vacation. Uh, my family and I had a great time. We went to the beach, and it was colder there than it was here, but hey, we had a good time. So uh, thanks for letting us get some much-needed rest and having some family time. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Matt, for stepping in and, and teaching for me while I was gone. A couple of other announcements, our, our Christmas Advent worship schedule is available. Uh, I know some of you have been asking. We have four worship services that we're going to do Advent in. That means we have two candles on, on Christmas Day that we're going we're gonna to do. But typically we have a candlelight service on Christmas Eve. It's the conviction of our church that we gather together as the body of Christ, and we're going to do that on Sunday morning. So we're going to actually get to worship together as a, as a family on Christmas morning this year. And so we've moved the Christmas candlelight service to the 1030 a.m. service on Christmas Day. And so what, what better way to spend the birth of Jesus' celebration than, than here together? And so we invite you to be a part of that. Every, every Sunday this month, we'll, we'll have an Advent reading and a candle and the Lord's Supper. And so we look forward to doing that together. Uh, number two, you have a gift out in the lobby. And so uh, just in case you don't know, there's a, there's a table out there, and we have purchased you a devotional for 2023. It's a uh, read-through-the-Bible devotional, and uh, you, you can go one of two ways with that. It has a short section of Scripture every day with a little commentary that you can read, or if you want to dive in, it'll give you all the verses that you need to read for that day if you would like to get through the entire Bible in a year again. So that would be our, our reading plan for 2023, and we hope it's an encouragement to you personally. In, uh, in your time with the Lord, but also it can be used in small groups for discussion as we read together. Um, if you have a Christmas box, an Operation Christmas Hope box, we uh, need those back by next Sunday so we can get those to uh, the places they need to go. And so if you'll just bring that back and put it underneath the tree, and if you're looking for another way to give this Christmas above and beyond your, your regular gifts and tithes and offerings, there are Lottie Moon envelopes on a table out there where you can give to missions, and it goes straight to support our missionaries who are on the field. And lastly, I know there's a lot of announcements. There are Christmas parties happening all the time, and so if you're a part of a small group, your, your group may be having a party that I don't know about, but I'll go ahead and give you these. College group, you're tonight, my house. Um, I'm smoking a turkey. It's going to be delicious. Okay, so we're going to do that. And uh, then youth and children, theirs are going to be the last Wednesday of this uh, of this month as we gather on Wednesday, so that would be December 14th, and I think the children are going to go caroling, so you need to go see Michelle Mitchell about a release form so we can take your child off campus, all those fun things, and the young adult class uh, led by Jonas and Lisa Batten would like to invite all the senior adults of the church to a Christmas party on Sunday, December the 18th at 5.30, and so if you uh, don't want to drive at night, they said that they'll come pick you up, and uh, if you are interested in being a part of that, they're going to have food and fun and Christmas carols and a game and all kinds of things. And so let Lisa Batten know. I think I've given you enough time to find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, hope so. Um, as we look at Advent, and we long for the second Advent. In a book called Come, Lord Jesus, it reads this way, Advent comes with an unbearable weight, the expectation of Christ's coming. We hear the echo of these words from 1 Samuel, who is able to stand before the holy Lord, his holy God. While we ache for him, we struggle to remain in his presence. 
the world and all of its shiny temptations distract us in our weariness, we relax our watchful gaze. Yet his coming will surprise us. We know not the day or the hour. Be on guard. Keep awake. These are Jesus' own words to us. Pay attention, he encourages. Advent comes every year at a predetermined time marked on virtually every calendar available. We know exactly when it will begin, and we know when it will end. The season of Advent offers us an opportunity to prepare not only our homes for the Christmas season, but our hearts for the second coming, the second Advent. Have you prepared your heart for Christ's return? Living in light of his return, the church in uh, Thessalonica, they longed for the return of Christ. You see it in the way that Paul writes to him. And here, as we get into chapter 4, there's, there's a little bit of a shift in the way that he's talking. He's got past all the pleasantries and all the welcoming parts of the letter. And now he's going to move into a challenge for a church that's waiting on Christ's return. So what does it look like? Well, living in light of his return is a life of sanctification. This is a big word, big theological word, but it's what we're going to talk about this morning as we get into 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, if you'll follow along with me. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses, transgresses or wrongs his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you inspired it by your Holy Spirit through men, that they could write truth that is infallible, that was appropriate for a church and Thessalonica that is appropriate for a church in Georgetown, Tennessee. We thank you for your spirit that you give us. We thank you that you've not left us alone, but you've equipped us with everything we need to live a godly life. We would ask, Lord, that you would do in us a work that only you can do, that you would make us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ, as we await your return. Father, move us in sanctification. We thank you for your grace. It is all by grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Living in light of his return is walking in progressive sanctification. We say progressive sanctification because it's an ongoing thing that takes place in the life of a believer. The word sanctification has many translations. It can be separation, set apart, 
holy. Uh, the Vines Expository Dictionary would say that it is the separation of the believer from evil. It is the result of obedience to the word of God. Progressive sanctification is what gradually separates the people of God from the world and makes them more and more like Jesus. So living in light of his return is the process of his Holy Spirit and your obedience to the word working in you more and more and more. And so you see there twice in this little section he says more and more. Paul says, I want to see sanctification happen more and more. As you're already doing, keep doing it more and more. Let's continue to see what Christ has done inwardly work its way outwardly in your life. So sanctification is God's work in the life of a believer, but it differs from justification. And it differs mainly in justification being that one-time work of God resulting in a, a declaration that you're not guilty. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't you just love that? That because of the work of Jesus Christ, that he was born in a manger, he lived a perfect life, he was sinless, and he died on our behalf on a cross, and then he rose again, meaning that if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we are declared innocent for all the sins that we've committed, because he has taken that penalty, he's taken that wrath on our behalf. No condemnation. But sanctification's the ongoing work of the Spirit after that initial moment. It's a, it's a dot on the line. So justification, and then the line begins in your life of sanctification. And it's, as you know, it is not this straight line, is it? And it's not even, it's not even a line that's just gradually getting better and better. As, as I like to tell people, when you give your testimony, get ready, because our stories of sanctification are all going to be different, and it's going to be, oh, look, oh. And then there's this moment, and then, and then and, the, and you just kind of have this gradual graph of how God's been working in your life all of these years, more and more. Millard Erickson, in his book, Christian Theology, he says, Sanctification is the continuing work of God in the life of a believer, making him or her actually holy. By holy, here is meant bearing an actual likeness to God. Sanctification is a process by which one's moral condition is brought in con into conformity with one's legal status before God. It is a continuation of what was begun in regeneration. When a newness of life was conferred upon and instilled within the believer. In particular, sanctification is the Holy Spirit's applying to the life of the believer the work done by Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thought. It is the application of the Holy Spirit of what Christ has already done. This is sanctification. Therefore, if sanctification is the continuing work of God in the life of a believer, because only God can separate, only God can save, only God can cleanse, only God is holy through his son Jesus, then sanctification is not accomplished by trying harder to be good. If it is God's work in the life of a believer, then, and then hear me out. Sanctification is not the ongoing process of a believer trying to be better. It is the ongoing process of learning to surrender. It's the ongoing process of allowing him to produce a godliness in you, not a goodness. It's an ongoing process of I want to be more and more and more like Christ. The gospel is not a call to be good. It's a call to faith. 
a surrender to God and the finished work of Christ that creates in us a regenerate heart that then causes us to be regenerate from one degree of glory to the next. As Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As he wrote, in, as, as, as we see written in Leviticus 20.26, 20, that the people of God are to be holy. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. As Jerry Bridges says, a life that grows in loving God becomes like God. So then the question is, do we love God? Do we long for his return? Because a life and a heart that loves God, as John Owen would say, love begets a likeness between the mind loving and the object of a love. A mind filled with the love of Christ as crucified will be changed into his image and likeness. The believer who has fallen in love with Jesus Christ will be in progressive sanctification. More and more grow in these things. So here Paul shifts. And as he shifts into this section of the letter, I'm going to give you three subpoints. Walking in progressive sanctification urges us to walk in a manner that pleases the Lord more and more. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. A Christian's hope for the future return of Christ must have a sanctifying influence on them presently. There should be an influence on our life knowing that he could return at any moment, that we are awaiting the second advent J. Vernon McGee says that, as he says that we ought to walk, this word walking is not a balloon ascension. A great many people think that the Christian life is some great overwhelming experience, and you take off like a rocket being out of, into outer space. That's not where you live the Christian life. Rather, it's in your home, in your office, in your schoolroom, on the street. The way you get around in this life is to walk. You are to walk in Christ. Let me ask, as you think about the moment of regeneration, justification, and then every step of your life since that moment, have the people in your home seen you being transformed from one degree of glory to the next? Have the people in your workplace Witness that you're not the same person that you were before this thing happened in your life. Uh, the, the people in your school, students, the way that your, your fellow classmates view the way that you live, if you claim to be a Christian, do they see a difference in your life? That there's something progressingly taking place, that you are more and more growing. The words more and more in one commentary point to a spiritual growth. It's not enough to exist as a Christian. We must move forward in excellence. It is one thing to park ourselves in the Christian life, but it is another to prevail in it. Another commentator says, status quo in the Christian life always means stagnation, deterioration, and a decay of holiness. Have you had those moments in your Christian walk where you just, you just kind of were idle? 
it wasn't long, was it? Before there was a deterioration of your spiritual growth? It wasn't long till the decay of sin began to creep its way back into your life and in your heart and in your mind and in your thoughts. This is what happens when we uh, fail to abide. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, sanctification is God's work in the life of a believer. And if he's working in, whatever he's working in us, we should be working out. It should be evident in the life of a believer. If God's working in you, then work out what he's doing in you with your actions and your obedience more and more. The more he sanctifies you within, the more it will show in your walk. This means that while you are saved from the penalty of sin, not from your own doing, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you must now work out your sanctification while wrestling with the ever-present torment of sin. It's by wrestling with sin that we are able to walk in obedience. It is by wrestling with sin that we are able to walk in obedience and grow in sanctification. The second sub-point there, B, walking in progressive sanctification is the will of God. This is so plain, right? I want to know the will of God for my life. Your sanctification. There it is. What do you, what's the will of God for my life? And oftentimes we, we ask that question. I just really want to know God's will right now. I'm trying to figure out if I should buy this house or if I should take this job or if I should go to this college or if I should move across the country to Georgetown or Harrison or wherever it is. You know, like, should I, should I really move there? I'm really trying to figure out God's will for my life. I got God's will for your life. It's right here, your sanctification. If you want to know the will of God, read the word of God. If you want to know the will of, if you want to do the will of God, then obey the word of God. Spurgeon said this, you find all true theology summed up in these two short sentences. Salvation is all of the grace of God and damnation is all the will of man. The great destroyer of man is the will of man. I do not believe that man's free will has ever saved a soul, but man's free will has been the ruin of multitudes. The human will is desperately set against God and is the great devourer and destroyer of thousands of good intentions and emotions which never come to anything permanent because the will exacting in opposition to that which is right and true. The thing that is going against the will of God for your life, your sanctification, is the will of man. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus puts this into practice. He taught his disciples to pray this way, and then he puts this into practice when he's in the garden in Luke twenty-two forty-two, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. When we pray for the Lord's will, we're saying, God, may your will be done in and through my obedience and surrender to it. We're praying, Lord, make me a kingdom person. Make me someone who submits to your authority and your rule. When we pray your will be done, we're praying, 
God, make me an obedient person who's willing to submit to your word. When we pray your will be done, we're saying, sanctify me. Make me a person who's willing to submit to your will and not follow my will. Your will be done means that you're ready to jump in headfirst into God's will for your life by being obedient, even if it means going against your will. Being obedient, even if it means going against your wants. Being obedient, even if it means going against your emotions or your feelings or your urges. I want to be obedient to your will. This is the life of progressive sanctification. This is the life of someone who is awaiting the return of a king. See, walking in progressive sanctification is abstaining from sexual morality. Paul points out to a Greco-Roman culture that their lifestyle has to change. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. John Stott explains that Paul here feels the necessary requirement to address sexual morality in a Greco-Roman world because it was so prevalent in the towns that he was writing to. I mean, he's writing from Corinth. Corinth had Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex and beauty, which the Romans identified with Venus, and they sent her servants out into the streets to roam the streets at night to be prostitutes. Thessalonica, on the other hand, was also associated with other deities for worship that promoted gross immorality. Thosthenes, however you say his name, <laughs> the Greek um, historian, says we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep mistresses for day-to-day needs of the body, and we keep wives for begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. This was the mindset in which Paul writes. Paul writes to brothers. Paul writes to the church. He writes to a church that is surrounded by a sexually immoral culture. I think it's safe to say that we're a church surrounded by a sexually immoral culture. And the reason he writes to the church is because the sexually immoral culture had worked its way into the church. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual morality. This is God's will. If you want to know God's will, read God's word. If you want to do God's will, obey God's word. Matthew 5, 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. It's clear as we get through various scripture references that it is the will of God that the church abstain from sexual morality. Sexual sin finds its root ultimately where all sin finds its root in an unwillingness to do what God says in his word. Every act of sexual morality can be traced back to a heart that is more concerned with its own will over his will. More concerned with its wants over his word. More concerned with desire of pleasure over a desire to please God. Are you living in light of his return? Verse 4 says that each one of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we have told you before and, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. So how do we abstain from sexual morality? Paul's going to give you three real quick ways to do so. Number one, by controlling your own body. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And if you're not abiding, then you won't be producing. Having it produced in your life is a process of abiding. So let me ask you, do you have control of your body or does your body have more control of you? Is your life, your sanctification revealing that you are different in how you handle your life than the Gentiles handle their lives who do not know the Lord. Number two, by treating others as God intended. In fact, to be sexually immoral is to tell God that you don't care what his word says. And it's to tell others you don't care what this does to them. You only care about yourself and your satisfaction. John Phillips offers a good illustration. He says that God has written on a giant sign no trespassing. It's a giant no trespassing sign over every man and every woman who is not your husband or your wife. And not only that, but below the sign it says prosecutors will be persecuted. You ever got in trouble for trespassing? When I was in high school, our church school bus, our church, our school bus broke down and we were, uh, we were kind of stranded and I, I just saw this yard a neighbor's yard, and they had all these concrete deer, like, set up in their yard. And I thought, 
you know what, it'd be funny if I just snuck over there and started riding one of those deers. And so I left the, the bus and I kind of worked my way from tree to tree like it was Mission Impossible and I jumped out of the bushes and I grabbed this deer, act like I was wrestling it, and I jumped on top of it and I was like, Woo! and I was like, oh, look at everybody laughing at me, I'm so funny. And then the cops got called. And the homeowners were, they didn't think it was funny, shockingly enough. And uh, I, got, I got in some trouble. Oftentimes we think things are funny or appropriate. And we don't ever think about the consequences. We don't ever treat the person who owns that property as if they deserve that respect. Sexual morality is not love. It's not loving. God is love, and if we get our definition from, from God of what love is, then it can't be sinful. Number three, by understanding our calling. God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. God has not called you and I to remain impure. First Peter 1, 14 through 16, as obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, I say all that, and it's, it's a weighty topic. And so I'd like to read John 8, 3 through 11. This is a great story in the Gospels. The scribe and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Man, don't you just love that story? Love it. I love that it, I love that it's in the face of the religious people. <laughs> There's part of me that's like, yeah, religious people, take that. I love it because it tells us that God loves sinners. I love it because it shows that in our sinful state, not being able to hide who we are and not being able to hide what we've done, that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Don't you love that? I love this story. I love it because it gives hope. But did you catch what was said at the end? Go, and from now on, 
sin no more. Jesus basically tells this woman, listen, you're forgiven. Don't go back. Don't continue in sin. Don't accept sexual sin as part of your life anymore. You've been called. You've been redeemed. You've been pronounced not condemned. Now go and let that be the conduct of your life. So what if she disregarded that last command? Wouldn't you read the story differently? What if she said, oh, I'm glad you don't condemn me. I'm just going to go right back. He says there, therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. Why is it that the call to abstain from sexual morality is often disregarded by Christian nominalism? Yeah, I'm a Christian. My life may not look any different than the world's, but yeah, I believe. Scripture's clear. If you call yourself a believer and continue to disregard God's clear word, you're rejecting God. If you continue to live in accepted sexual sin, you're disregarding the command of God, the will of God, and you're rejecting the presence of God and the Holy Spirit who is given to you as a helper to empower you towards progressive sanctification. Man, I really thought I was going to get through more verses today. But I'm not going to. So maybe we just close there with the thought that if you're in Christ, what grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. What grace. What mercy. What forgiveness. What joy it is to know that he came so that we could be forgiven. And what joy it is to know that he will return to call us home. That we've been saved from the penalty of sin because of his work on the cross. We're in the process of being saved from the power of sin because more and more we're growing in his likeness. And one day we'll be saved from the presence of sin where all the sins that have piled up will be wiped away as far as the east from the west. Every tear that we shed because of how we failed will be wiped away. What goodness and grace await us with a returning king. Now go and sin no more.